Welcome to Pontifax, a papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. I'm Brie, and today we're not ranking a pope, but instead bringing you a very special bonus episode with a very special guest. There is a new papal history book that has just been released. City of Echoes, available as of September 5th, covers the full historical span of the papacy, one could say, from Peter to Francis and the impact that they have had on the city of Rome. Quoting its summary, Emerging as the anonymous leader of a marginal cult in the humblest quarters of the city, the popes began as the pastor of a maligned and largely foreign flock. Less than 300 years later, he sat enthroned on a lofty, heavily gilt basilica, a religious leader endorsed and financed by the emperor himself. Eventually, the Roman pontiff would supplant even the emperors as the de facto ruler of Rome and preeminent leader of the Christian world. By the 19th century, it would take an army to wrest the city from the pontiff's grip. As the first ever account of how the Pope's presence has shaped the history of Rome, City of Echoes not only illuminates the lives of the remarkable and unremarkable men who have sat on the throne of St. Peter, but also reveals the bold and curious actions of the men, women, and children who have shaped the city alongside them, from antiquity to today. In doing so, this book tells the history of Rome as it has never been told before. So joining us today is the author of City of Echoes, Dr. Jessica Warnberg, to talk all things popes. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to Pontifact. Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your research? Yeah, certainly. Um, I sort of started my training as an art historian. My undergrad degree was in history of art. And I did a course on landscape art, um, which I loved because it's, mm. it's, it's beautiful and it's interesting. But I soon found um, when we were looking at the 17th century that I was much more interested in these papal patrons of landscape art. I mean, my, my, my father was raised Catholic, but I grew up in some Church of England Methodist schools. And I was amazed quite naively that you had these religious figures who were also princes who were building palaces and filling them with, with landscape art um, that showed their sort of ownership over the land. I also studied a bit of modern art and became really interested in how uh, modern artists were kind of looking back to religious ceremony. And I thought, what's all? I got really sort of intrigued about these things. So I went on to study and research religious history and mainly of the Reformation and got really interested in sort of the survival of the papacy, the power of ideas, the way the popes tried to sort of control ideas through the Inquisition and the Jesuits, other religious orders, persuasion, liturgy sort of working as secular rulers as well, giving people free bread, free grain or subsidized grain. And I became fascinated with these figures. I I did my PhD on the Inquisitions and the Jesuits, and that was the subject of my first book. And when I emerged from that and thought, well, what next? I had the audacity (laughs) to think, well, let's get to the bottom of how this amazing and incredibly enduring institution that is at once divine and very worldly, as you and your listeners will know, how did it all come about? And more interestingly still, I think, why has it lasted for so long in roughly the same form? 
That is the big question and one that we grapple with at every stage. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your work in the Vatican Archives and the Office of the Holy Inquisition? Yeah, absolutely. It's always such a thrill. Actually, my PhD supervisor, she was in Rome when I started my work in the archives there. And she gave me a full introduction to what you have to do to get to the Vatican. So you have to go to a special gate called the Porta Sant'Anna. You have to pass the Swiss Guard. Then you go, you surrender your passport because you haven't got your library card yet. So you you can't just flash your library card. And you go up and it really is like a great sort of it's not a procession, but it's, it's a rite of passage, it feels like, as a, as a such historian. And I said to her, thank you so much for giving me all of this detail. And she said, no, somebody did it for me once, and it's fun to do it for somebody else. But I think <laughs> that one of the privileges about studying the papacy and researching the papacy is not only does it have such a huge, abundant archive, right? They've been making records since, for many, many, many centuries. So there's a lot there. But you get to study them where the story continues in the heart of the Vatican. Yes. So it's, the reading room, you know, is on a courtyard that's connected to the Vatican buildings in the Vatican complex. There are many, you know, priests and religious there using the archives, working at the archives. And that's embodied even more at the Holy Office archive because <laughs> the Holy Office archive, the archive of the Inquisition, is an archive in the palace, which is still the Holy Office uh, under a different name. It's now called the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith um, but it's still a working office of the church doing something a bit different the pope's changed it recently but roughly it's kind of protecting the faith um, <laughs> is, the, is the main aim through different means um and the reading room has just got about 12 seats in it it's mm. that's the archive it's small the rest of it is the whole thing working together and i think there is it's not been that open for that long it's only been open since the late 90s to scholars and so there's a real sense there like that even some of the people who work there aren't being cool about it. You know, they, <laughs> it's the Inquisition. And actually, gratifyingly, the very first time I went there, I went alone. And instead of going to the side door where you're supposed to go in as a scholar, I went to the front door, the huge studded front door of this Renaissance Palazzo next to the Vatican, and rang the doorbell. And a Franciscan <laughs> came up next to me and said, the Inquisition. Ooh. <laughs> and... And I just laughed and I thought, gosh, yeah, it is amusing. But there, I think there's a real historical value, actually, in remembering daily, mm. whilst you're working with these documents, that this is not something remote, um, even when it seems like that when you're reading documents about, you know, people being locked up for what they, they believed or being sort of interrogated mm-hmm. about what they believe. But this is something that has a legacy that lives on in our day, albeit in a very different uh, or rather different form. And you're also in the building where the Inquisition had met centuries ago as well. And I think that proximity is really, really valuable, not just because it's cool, but because it helps us to understand actually how these things operated. When you see how close that building is to the Vatican complex, that tells us something about how important it is. So it's exciting and fun for many reasons during research in those places. And they are very open to scholars. So I'd encourage anybody who's studying or researching um, these things in a university, if you have cause to go, don't think the doors are closed. They're very open to scholars and it's definitely worthwhile. That's incredible. And that's very much tying into what you've done here with your book, talking about how the physical history of the space is so important to our connection with that history and the the Mm. legacy of that history. So how does that inspire you to then write City of Echo? So funny enough, I'm so glad you asked that. You've got it. It's about being in the city. And this was sparked 
by my experience of living in the city. So I had a fellowship with the the British School at Rome, which is fantastic because I got to live in Rome uh, for a year um, and just do archival work. That's all I did. It was fantastic. It was like being at some kind of amazing boarding school where you're an adult and you got to do (laughs) archival research and not like sort of maths or something. The dream. Exactly. One of the wonderful things about it was you were there with other scholars, but also artists. So artists also live at these foreign academies in Rome. And so I found myself walking around the city with a lot of people who'd never thought about church history before, because they were there to do a project that was in some way inspired by Italy or, or Roman culture or some aspect that may not have anything to do with the church. Right. And they were walking around and a lot of them thought that it was a bit absurd. Like, why is there this obelisk in the middle of a piazza, an obelisk from ancient Egypt with a cross on the top and a pope's name? And there's Latin inscription. And what does this Latin inscription mean? And I'm saying, oh, well, it means that this obelisk has been purged of heresy. And then I go, oh, what does all of that mean? And suddenly I started to look at Rome anew and started to look at things that I'd taken for granted. So this Christian city, this fabric that was pregnant with the power of the popes um, on every, mm-hmm. almost every corner that I'd taken as a given, that almost seems like it's something that was kind of divinely jumped up or emerged fully formed organically, because I'd become so used to looking at it and studying it. And I began to realise, actually, no, this is the result of a really remarkable story. And some questions I couldn't answer, you know, when you really started going back, because I'm, I'm an early modernist. And so I came back, I finished my PhD, I finished my first book. And I started to think, you know, dare I, dare I start to unpick this thread? And I realized that whilst there are lots of books of, of paper biographies, um, like mm-hmm. famously in, in Britain, we have John Julius Norwich's book on the Pope, because I know it exists in North America as well. <laughs> yes. We also have Eamon Duffy's book about the history of the papacy, which touches, mm-hmm. you know, all these different aspects of the institution. And there are lots of books about the history of Rome. But I thought, well, what about this thread? that goes throughout the whole history of Rome from late antiquity through to our present day has shaped the present city more than perhaps any other of its sort of histories, imperial, republican. I'm always tentative about saying that, about, you know, I feel like uh, those classicists are going to come out and come for me. But I really do think if you walk around Rome now, that the footprint is papal, really, rather than classical. Yeah. And there's, that story hasn't been told. And actually, I think it could tell us a lot about Rome and the way it's developed if we just look at that thread going through. How have the emergence of the papacy shaped the city and why did it emerge there? And how has Rome in turn shaped the papacy? Because it, it really has, you know, so mm. uh, that's how it came about. And I yeah, plucked up the courage and started. I still feel slightly audacious and frightened by the whole thing. (laughs) So many people care about Rome and it's a long story bringing in together lots of different things. Well, and I think that ties directly in what you've done with the title of your book, which is a quote from Giotto, that Rome is a city of echoes. Is there anything more you want to say about how that phrase and how that idea plays into or specifically applies to the papacy? Mm. Yeah, it is another idea that runs through the book that's key to it, actually, is this idea of two sorts of echoes, really. I don't like being overly complicated, but I'm going to say there are two sorts of echoes. So the idea came from really the inscription on the interior of the dome in St. Mm -hmm. Peter's that says to S. Petrus, and it's from the line in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says to Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. To me, that's where it all comes back to, you know, 
the Pope is only the Pope because he's Bishop of Rome and because Peter died in Rome and because yes. Jesus said these words to Peter. And the institution of the papacy has endured through centuries of different rulers, different invaders, different cultures. And even today, in a culture that couldn't be more radically different to the Roman culture that Peter, um, the culture of the Roman which Peter arrived, that is still the premise, the underpinning, and the central claim of the current Bishop of Rome. And so there's something quite beautiful, I think, about the way that's in the drum, that circular drum sort of echoing around. It's the sense of eternity, this divine claim. Uh, and it does echo down the ages, because when it comes to that, that is still the, the main thing, the entire premise of the papacy and the papal authority. I also think there are many other echoes in Rome and in the papacy, and they come from aspects of um, imperial Rome that the papacy mm -hmm. adopted uh, deliberately and sort of by osmosis, if you will, as they grew up into an institution. And also in terms of people who've tried to come in and work alongside or even usurp the popes or kind of take the places that figurehead of the city, whether that be sort of Colle di Renzo in the medieval period in the 14th century, who, you know, takes over as a sort of demagogue while the popes are in Avignon. Um, but in order to do so, he has to take some of the trappings of the emperors. He gets himself in a purple robe, but also some of the popes. He goes to St. Peter's. He gives out money to the poor. He has all of these religious uh, symbols. So there's mm -hmm. a sense that, um, you know, all of these things are, uh, all of these ideas and messages are echoing through Rome. And you see it in the buildings, whether it be sort of in a building like the Pantheon, which is now a church. You've taken an ancient Roman building, a pagan to all gods and repurposed it as a church. There's this interweaving of ideas, but I think it's an echo more than anything because it's the same sounds important, enduring the main power that really matters. So there are two sorts of echoes. And so it seemed a really fitting quote for the title of the book, which discusses how that. all those echoes sort of came together. So your book presents an exploration of popes in a very similar approach to what we do on this podcast, which is to focus on the historical context and the political and the social dynamic rather than just centering on spirituality and theology, which is often present in a lot of those sources that you mentioned prior. Why is it important to evaluate popes this way? It's such an interesting question. Because in one way, I would say you can never divorce the two, right? So absolutely, we've already covered the fact, you know, the Pope is only the Pope by virtue of Peter, and Peter's only the rock by virtue of Jesus. So we're very much grounded in a theological idea. So you can't divorce the two, because this is all sort of then built up from that fact. However, I think you've got to look at the popes as figures in the world, social, political, cultural, because they were in the world and they played such a significant role within it. I also think that in terms of the world that we live in, certainly in the West, broadly defined, it is increasingly secular. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's incredibly valuable just for the sake of understanding how we got here to know that actually you can't cast aside figures just because they're religious and just because the underpinnings of their power theological, you know, maybe we don't believe in that so much anymore. Because I'm sorry, they did really shape the world that we live in. They did have a huge impact on the history, uh, global history. And so yes. I think that to try to discuss them in some kind of 
religious vacuum just isn't sort of historically honest. Sorry, I feel like being very dramatic about this. But they played such a huge role in history. And that's why I mean, I'm so glad when I think about other scholars who've written books on the history of the popes, like, for example, Ludwig von Pasta's History of the Popes, which multi-volume I go back to constantly. It's a history of the whole world, certainly yes. Europe, because he has to constantly be dipping into the consequences and interactions of the popes everywhere. So they may have stayed in Rome most of the time, a lot of the time, but they were by some means everywhere. Um, and you even get, you know, in the early modern period, popes carving up the Americas, yes. you know, places they're never going to visit and making decisions by virtue of a religious power, but they've got their fingers in all kinds of pies. And I think it's really interesting. The papal story is a political one. And it is a, a secular one, as well as having these religious underpinnings. Absolutely. That is the entire story of our podcast as well. How often I get to take my co-host on journeys entirely separate, but all of this is context for one decision that the Pope is going to make that will change everything for these people. Yeah. And I think that that's really relevant, too, because... Like you said, they are figures in the world. We're often told by our listeners that they never knew or certainly didn't expect papal history to be so interesting and so complex and to have such a far-reaching consequence. So do you think that it has been underanalyzed or underconsidered until now in academic or popular history? I'm not sure if it has by historians. I think just some of the volumes that we've talked about already, stretching from sort of our own century, you know, back into the 19th century, and that the Catholic Church is writing its own history, it's got its own historians, <laughs> you know, very early, and then also Protestants write a lot about the roots of Christianity and oh, yes. the papacy in, in very different terms to, to Catholic authors <laughs> often. And there's been so much work, really cutting edge work on the papacy as a secular institution. So there's an Italian mm -hmm. historian called Paolo Prodi, who wrote a book called Il Sovrano Pontefice, all about how the Pope was essentially the, built the first nation state administration, more or less, sort of the, the basis of the nation state in terms of his administrative setup. So the scholarship is there, and there are many, many scholars and institutions building on that. And I think, in a way, I'm thinking on my feet, but this is actually a problem of perceptions. Yes. I think it goes back to this idea of, the papacy is something we all feel we know. It's a familiar concept. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys in Rome, the Pope. <laughs> but that means that we don't really, unless you get a real taste of it, like I could say we have, and, yes. and, and get hooked <laughs> on it. Why would you, if you think you understand something and it's not relevant to your life because you're not Catholic or not Christian, or or maybe you are Catholic and Christian, but you think you've got it all, you know, you think, I know what these are. It's the chap who does the Erbia Orbi, and, and he sometimes pops up and says things and it is on the news. Why would you look at it any more closely? And right. I think that's almost a bit of the curse of familiarity. It's like I've lived in London, more or less, with a few breaks for nearly 20 years. I've never been to Buckingham Palace. Because I kind of think that I know what it is. You know, I think I know as a Victorian palace, yeah, and the Queen. I walk past them many times. But mm -hmm. actually, I have no idea what's in there. You know, well, right. I have it's a vague idea. But, you know, there might be all kinds of things in there that really surprise me and really interest me. But I've made all of these assumptions about what it is I'll find there. And I feel like I know it. And I think that the popes and papal history suffer with that a bit. And also, I think in terms of being embedded in the history of Rome, there could be a bit of a historical problem, which is that in some ways, I'm going to make a, I might regret the statement, but we could sort of, we, in many ways, we are heirs of the Enlightenment, right? And in the 18th yes. century, 
a lot of people decided that the most interesting thing about Rome, or they all happened before the popes emerged and ruined it all. (laughs) And that actually classical Rome and ancient Rome is far more interesting. And so I think that if you go to the shelves, certainly in most British bookstores, you look for Rome, people think you're talking about ancient Rome or that those are the books that will proliferate. And so I think the idea of Rome in many people's heads is quite set. And the popes vaguely fit into that, but it's something that's not that interesting. And then the the popes, we feel that we know them, so we don't take a closer look. And I I think it's about expectations and about where the way that we think about Rome as well. Now now I consider it. Yeah, it it is definitely a problem of the zeitgeist that shifted with the Enlightenment, which you do comment interestingly on in your book. I had never considered it that way, but you're absolutely correct that the interest in Rome now is primarily about ancient Rome. And that is absolutely true in North America as well. There isn't that if you went into a bookstore here, it would absolutely be ancient Roman books all the way across. Do you know what's interesting though is is that the Vatican is more visited than the Colosseum. You know, so there is, and I know it has great collections of art, but there is an interest, you know, there is a curiosity. And that's also something I wanted to look at with this book. I mean, why do we still care? It's part of the question of why is it endured? But it's Mm -hmm. also, you know, why do we still care? I mean, in the US, for example, I know you're in Canada, I'm not equating the two, but I apologize, I don't know the statistics. But it's around between 20 and 25% of people would call themselves Catholic. And I think a lot of that encompasses as well, people are sort of culturally Catholic. In Britain, it's less than 10% of people. And yet, when we were traveling recently and ended up tuning into a lot more sort of international news and just news in general, and a lot of these channels were covering the Pope's words at Catholic Youth Day. Mm-hmm. And you think, you think, why do we care? You know, this it's not like you can say, oh, he's the leader of a large amount of the population here, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even in the States, whether it's more sizable, but whether dominant group, okay, globally, you could say, you know, it is a huge group. But there's something beyond that. There's a curiosity. Yeah. There's something that makes people happy or angry when the Pope says something that they either agree with or disagree with. And that's another thing that came up in my conversations actually when I was in Rome is, oh, why has the Pope said this about you know X, Y, and Z? And I think, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, why do you care? That's what really interested me. You know, why do we? Why has he not just got this enduring presence? There's an enduring influence. There's an enduring significance, almost in spite yes. of culture. It's fascinating. Absolutely. So let's go through the periodization of the papacy and go through some questions, jumping through the eras to point out how these echoes come to be. So let's start with the early church. The early church was practically invisible. And when speaking of the first martyrdoms, you say very poignantly in your book that the majority of Romans saw no heroic virtue in the deaths of the martyrs because the majority didn't see these deaths at all. So what can we attribute most to Christianity coming out of this invisible and inconsequential state of its early origins? So do you mean sort of what helped it emerge from yeah. that sort of, yeah. It's interesting because that quote was you just cited is, I was talking about sort of the 50s, right? So 50s, mm-hmm. 60s, and people like Paul and Peter were arriving. And even as the Roman church grows and gets a hierarchy and you suddenly get people you could almost recognize as popes around the kind of 150s to 180s, 
they're still marginal figures. These are not major parts of, you know, the the Roman political structure or social structure. And I think it's a very classic answer, but I think it is actually the most correct one here. I think it's Constantine. Um, mm-hmm. So I think Constantine's legalization of Christianity, or at least the making of the persecution of Christians illegal, opens the door for Christianity and for the Roman church to come out of the shadows. It doesn't get made the official religion of the Roman Empire until the end of that century. But in 313, when he makes persecution illegal, he gives the green light for the church to move out of the shadows. He doesn't yet really sort of, what I say is, make it cool, right? (laughs) The the pagan elites aren't following him. You know, it's not even clear whether he fully and decisively converted himself after fighting under the sign of Cairo and winning, but he certainly gets favourable. And what he gives Christianity is not in this sort of legal protection, but in Rome, he gives it its first architectural imprint. Yes. So before Constantine, the spot of Peter's execution on the Vatican Hill was a dusty, remote spot next to Nero's racetrack in a cemetery where Christians would have sort of quite furtively visited. And the only monument was a small canopy on four columns, very, very small and certainly nothing like a basilica. On that spot, Constantine builds the first version of St. Peter's Basilica that one day would become the center of the Christian world, the center of global diplomacy by the early modern period, one of the main centers. And it's inaugurated by Constantine giving it that kind of architectural manifestation. You're saying this is something that we need to make monumental. He also builds, even before that, the West's first great Christian basilica, the Basilica of the Lateran, Interestingly, though, these are not in the center of Rome. He's not yes. knocking down pagan temples because that would anger a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the fourth century, we have really elite people who are very publicly aligning themselves with Christianity. So the beautiful sarcophagus of Junius Bassus, this Roman politician, which is now in the St. Peter's treasury, is kind of a testament to that. Somebody really publicly being Christian, creating their own sort of funerary monuments, if you will, that are Christian. And by the 380s, it's so cool to be a Christian that people like St. Jerome, who visit St. Peter's, this new basilica, well then, you know, a few decades on, and sees these sort of patrician women being carried in on litters with eunuchs, fading fasts, you know, doing all these very Christian things that aren't that Roman, sort of pretending to be meek and charitable, but actually being really quite haughty. And he's he's absolutely fuming about it because this isn't what Christianity is all about. And that is quick. I mean, that is really mm-hmm. quick. So, and that's the opposite of the shadow. So I think Constantine, although it wasn't immediate, he begins this architectural transformation. He begins this legal sort of permission. And then along with his mother and then bishops of Rome and other figures, sort of building buildings, filling them with shrines, filling those with relics. And we start to see the footprint of papal Rome. Could we argue in the same tone that by having the dedicated physical space, because the early church was a loosely connected set of home churches, secret meetings and whatnot, that by having a physical space and creating the footprint that this is how the Bishop of Rome actually begins to assert itself, not only over Rome itself, but also over territory and Christianity outside of Rome? It's an interesting question because... I think there is a placement of the popes as almost a 
para-political figure. Again, it sounds like I'm being complex, but what I mean, for example, is because Constantine gives him a basilica, gives the, the Pope, gives the Christian church in Rome basilicas. These were previously mm-hmm. state buildings where political meetings happened, where public affairs happened. So in that, he's sort of making them part of public life. He's bringing them into the culture of public life in Rome. And the Pope sits in the apse, which is where normally somebody who is making the most important decisions in these sort of secular buildings, not that anything was really that secular in ancient Rome, um, (laughs) where we were making sort of public decisions would sit. And you get this idea, and people talk of it, of the Pope being like God's consul. So these are some of the echoes, right? The papacy is adopting some of these trappings. And so I think there are definitely elements of the architecture, And just the way that the papacy or the bishops of Rome begin to act and function, that put it in a position where it's more natural or more possible for it to take the place as de facto ruler of Rome once the empire falls in the late 5th century. And even before then, when the emperors are living in places like Ravenna and Milan and, and not in Rome at all. So I think there is definitely something in it. I think that it's those cultural trappings, although they might seem superficial, are actually very important markers of the legitimacy of the papacy. And they also very much tie it to the fabric of Rome, which I feel I'm going to repeat myself a lot on this. But the fabric of Rome is, if we think about the death of Peter and him dying there, Rome is the reason. Like Rome is the reason why they're popes. So by tying them to that, making them part of the landscape, um, I think it makes it much easier for them later on to say, ah, this is now the center of the Roman Empire, a new Christian empire, if you will. Right. Until that begins to be challenged when we enter the Byzantine papacy and the removal of the emperors from Rome, and then this conflict that we see as this development takes place, because then we have the Byzantine emperors fighting to bring the growing influence of the popes to heel. This is a period where we see the imposed right to approve the choice of popes before consecration, and emperors resorting to violence and compulsions when popes aren't towing the imperial line, even on matters of theology. So going from having this legitimization in Rome and becoming intertwined with the fabric of Rome, how do they then survive the imposition of the Byzantine emperors? What are their greatest moments of resistance? And how do they get past this challenge, this now external challenge? Mm, It's really interesting as a period because in one respect, You've got this conflict or this kind of wrestling for what are going to be the limits here? How's this going to work? The Byzantine Mm -hmm. emperors have kind of come in to drive out people like the Goths and the Visigoths in these barbarian tribes who are seen as coming in and taking over, not just seen as, but actually do come in and take over great swathes (laughs) of of the Italian peninsula. So in one way, they're almost like the saviors, right? But actually, they are, as you say, saying, right, we're going to intervene in papal elections. We're going to have a say over this. In reality, the Byzantine emperors aren't very present in Rome. They're ruling through these envoys, these representatives, the exarchs, who are based in Ravenna, which is on the east coast of Italy. And the emperors themselves are quite distracted a lot of the time. So there are moments actually that seem, and I am going to give you some some moments of of clash and, and rebellion, because they're always fun. But there are moments that might seem that way, that where actually the popes are already sort of de facto 
winners. Um, so <laughs> we have to remember that, uh, not to backtrack too much, but by this point, Leo the Great, for example, in the fifth century, has already gone out to meet Attila the Hun. He's already gone out to meet Geyser. He's already defending Rome. He's already saying things like, don't worry, you know, don't worry about the crumbling of the Western Roman Empire, Romans. You rule over a much bigger empire because of Peter and the spread of Christianity than you ever did when you were relying on armies. So the Pope's mm -hmm. already very confident. They've already started as well to assert that power. Leo as well in the gangster synod, probably the most thrillingly named synod um, uh, <laughs> out there, has been shut down by the Bishop of Alexandria and told, you know, you're not the supreme voice. And then come back at Chalcedon and actually through the emperors as well and said, no, actually, I am. I'm, I'm the dominant voice in the Christian world. So they're already very confident of their global importance. But they are reliant on these outside powers. And that's a pattern that we see throughout papal history. They don't usually have their own army that's you know strong enough to defend themselves. So they have to call on people. But one of the moments that's often seen as the great sort of audacious moment for the popes is when Pope Boniface IV takes over the Pantheon and turns it into a church, Church of Santa Maria ad Martires. And I think this is something that people still, when they go to the Pantheon, find a bit weird. I think I did yes. when I went there first. I thought, the Catholic Church have made it you know, into a church. This is out outrageous. You know, This is a, a pagan temple. But in reality, when Boniface wheeled you know, all of those relics and Christianized the Pantheon and made it into a church to the Holy Martyrs, it was being used as a secular building. So if this is actually a triumph over anything, it's not paganism, which was already dwindled in Rome, but actually over the state. <laughs> and although he seems to have asked for permission for this, there's no evidence that they could have stopped him. If the state right. really wanted to say, you know, we want to use this for storage or administrative building. And so there's a sense that they've already won. Um, but there are times when the emperors do try to intervene in religious matters, so not just elections. For example, the period of iconoclasm in the, yes. the 8th century, when the Byzantine emperors say, look, you can't have images, you can't venerate images of saints. Saints are core to the importance of Rome. Peter, relic, images, shrines, people coming mm. to Rome now from all over the Christian world. You know, Rome needs the veneration of saints and the people like the veneration of the saints. So when Leo the Azorian <laughs> says, you can't do this, Gregory III has a very active rebellion. And when the Exarch of Ravenna sends him six columns of onyx for the Shrine of St. Peter's to thank him for something they'd done because they, they would collaborate and they would help each other, Gregory uses them as stands for icons. So this <laughs> is really, really bold. And I think it's fascinating, actually, when I think about these two examples of Boniface and the Pantheon and Gregory and iconoclasm, these popes, just like Leo the Great, knew where the real power lay. It didn't mm -hmm. lay, actually, in an emperor, because they'd already seen the Western emperors who'd buoyed them up fall. And they'd already seen that the Byzantine emperor, you know, often was very distracted and not really helping Rome that much. And that would continue. They knew that the real strength of their regime as it was emerging or their position in Rome and Rome as, as a place of significance was grounded in martyrs saints, all of that authority, that divine authority that you can't take away with an army and that can't mm. be taken away from you because you get poor, because your army's not you know, big enough. And as I said, Leo said to the Roman people, you know, way back in the fifth century, you rule over a greater empire now. And 
he had a point, you know, it's not something that can be taken away. And they defend that. And I think that's really a source of their strength. They also find new allies. So when <laughs> when the Byzantines are really distracted, you get Stephen II going over actually and going to the Franks and asking them for help. So the popes are also saved by their pragmatism as well as their saints. Absolutely. I want to say as well that Pascal really embodies exactly what you're saying as well by making the housing of the relics and developing new churches that were dedicated specifically for this purpose of relic housing and pilgrimage really emphasizes what you're saying about the power of relics and that spiritual connection to the idea of of legitimacy. And Mm. also the pragmatism brings me right into my next question, because I'd love to talk about the Frankish emperors and the popes and how this idea of, oh, well, we as popes have already won. How does that come into conflict with the ideas of authority and control that we see when the Frankish emperors get involved? Yeah, again, I think there are definitely conflicts. Mm-hmm. And you get Frankish emperors telling, you know, telling popes how to be how to be popes, um, <laughs> and telling them how to occupy their office. And um, I think that the real clash doesn't necessarily it does come with individual popes. But the real clash I see with the period of the Frankish emperors is with the people, the other people in Rome and around Rome, who also want to control who the Pope are. So mm-hmm. we're getting mm. towards a period, which I think is where you're up to yes. in your line of Popes and Pope rating, where it seems like everything's about fighting over who's going who's going to be the Pope. You know, the papacy now is an office that's really worth fighting for and lots of different factions want to get involved. And so you get clashes, you know, even with Stephen III, when he has to have the help of the Frankish kings to fight against factions in and around Rome to become Pope. He even tries to exclude the laity from the election process, but that doesn't last. Um, It continues until the 11th century. And I think it's an interesting period because it shows us actually how many people want to take advantage of this office and how there's always going to be a conflict even with a supernatural authority like the Holy Roman Emperors, over who gets to choose or who has the greater influence about who sits on the papal throne. I think it's also important, though, is pragmatism. Because in spite of all of the conflict, they still turn to the emperors. Mm -hmm. And they still settle and they still sometimes kind of swallow their pride and get on with it. Because ultimately, the papacy is reliant on these outside forces. And they do for the Romans, for example, to swear fealty to the emperors. And they do need to ask for the confirmation of things like the donation of Pepin, the the lands and and the papal states. So I think Peter is key, right? So they're always going back to, these are Peter lands, these are the patrimony of Peter. It's your duty as a Christian to help us protect them. But the other P that we should have here is pragmatism, because they know they have to do that. It doesn't matter whether it's the Byzantines or the Frankish kings, but they've got to be able to turn to somebody to guarantee their power when it comes under threat from Lombards or anyone else who wants to invade. So I think that, yeah, there's a a lot of pragmatism and a lot of politicking during that period. Well, and the pragmatism and politicking is expanded when they are now given physical territory beyond Rome. This is the establishment of the Papal States. So how does the Papal States impact the secular authority of the papacy from this point forward? 
I don't think it can be underestimated, actually. I think obviously it consolidates that role the Pope had had as a kind of de facto ruler sitting on the ghost of empire or crown on the ghost of empire, as, as Hobbes said, that they're, they're stepping into this role as a figurehead in Rome. And mm-hmm. throughout the period that people are invading and popes are going out and saying, please don't invade the patrimony of Peter. This is special land. Go away, you know, and maybe don't invade Ravenna either. And people like even the Lombards who are Christians say, okay, fine, you know, for for Peter, we'll leave this alone. Um, Throughout that period, you you get the consolidation of the papal rule and the papal ownership, if you will, of these lands. That gives the Pope a real independence. It Mm -hmm. allows him to use this Petrine line to transcend politics, to say, okay, you want to invade Italy, but this isn't just Italy. This is holy ground. Okay? Mm-hmm. It also gives him an income. It gives him authority over a larger territory. It gives him a larger administration gradually. And I think those two things are both good and bad for the papacy. If we look ahead, and I know we're not there yet, but to the early modern period when the papal states cut a whole swathe across central Italy, you've got an income for the papacy. Um, you've got the Pope having the sort of autonomy of being a secular prince, if you will, which is incredibly valuable for his religious role. Right? The, the Pope can't be the subject of a prince. The Pope can't be the subject of a king. Because what if that king decides that the state religion is going to be, I don't know, you know, Islam, you know, or, or Judaism? What does the Pope do then? It, it can't happen. I mean, it was unlikely to happen then. But on principle, <laughs> the Pope needs to be independent. And I mean, that's the foundation of the Vatican state, which, we're, yeah, we're very much not there yet. But this is key, <laughs> this independence and this wealth for sustaining this growing operation. But it also gives the Pope a lot of problems that, you know, Galilean fishermen like Peter didn't have, you know, or even early, you know, the real early bishops of Rome didn't have. He has to govern all of these states. And there is great scholarship on the early modern period, um, particularly about how that was basically impossible, mm-hmm. you know, to get mm-hmm. the territories, to rule them, to assert your power over them from Rome in practical terms, political terms, moral terms. It's impossible. And so you get a growth of administration. You get, you know, bodies like the Buon Governo. You get a growing administration trying to organize these states and and assert papal authority over them. And it's never really fully achieved. And so more problems, but also a guarantee of independence and income, which a key really to the preservation of the religious role. So we're coming back actually to one of your really early questions of, of sort of, can, you didn't ask, can you separate the two? Because you know you can't separate the two, of course. But you really see in this, I think, how, you know, why does anyone need a state to be the successor of Peter? Well, actually, yeah. in, in a world of states, you do, <laughs> you do. And having a state also makes the papacy more appealing. So this, what you were saying before about people arguing over who's going to be Pope, this, after we deal with the Frankish emperors, we start to see that really strong contest for the papacy, particularly within the nobles of Rome, which is the period that our podcast is currently in with the pornocracy. So how does this period of noble jockeying for the papacy, this noble interference, which becomes very, very direct. How does this change the power of the popes? I think it does change the power of the popes, if only to denigrate the image of the papacy. 
I think mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, there is a correct, not so much a correction, but a qualification, I think, when we're talking about this period as the nadir of the papacy, the seculum obscura and the bonocracy, the, yes. the sources are not unbiased, right? There, a lot that we get is from Luchbrand of Cremona, who's mm-hmm. been such a good yarn. You, you almost, you don't want to believe everything he says because it's so wild, but you do want to believe everyone everything he says because it's so wild. So wild. <laughs> <laughs> but he was somebody who was directly involved in these conflicts, right? He was somebody who had interests, who wanted to, um, you know, work with the emperor. So he's not somebody who's, who's unbiased. But you can't, I, I don't know, maybe as an historian, I shouldn't say there's no smoke without fire, but we know from many <laughs> other sources, from other chronicles, from pamphlets from the time, that this was a period in which there were many battles for the papacy that turned really ugly. And you can't have events that are well documented, like the cadaver synod, you know, at the end of the ninth century. I don't know if you covered yes. the yeah, you covered the cadaver synod, you know what the cadaver synod is. But you've got, you know, you've got a corpse on trial, you know, sitting there defended by a deacon. I'd I'd love to know that that poor deacon, how he got roped into that, defended by a deacon having his fingers chopped off, you know, the blessing, the fingers with which he blessed, and then having all of that rolled back and refuted by the Roman people, his body dragged from the time. Mm. I mean, this is really squalid for a supposedly divine institution. Um, You've also got the denigration of the papacy in the eyes of political powers. So these political powers who have become essential to defending the papacy's growing interests and growing possessions are also feel let down, become more critical of the papacy in this period. So somebody like John Twelfth in the mid 10th century, uh, who calls on the emperor Otto for help. And he says, come and save, you know, the successor of St. Peter. I trapped inside Rome and Berengar, this invader is on his way. And he's saved by Otto. And then he gets worried about the influence of the emperor and he turns and sides with the man that he's been saved by. You know, these are not worthy allies. This is not Stephen riding to see Pepin the Short and, and making him patrician of the Romans. This is nothing sort of edifying. And by the 12th century, I'm skipping forward quite a lot, but I think the impact is really shown by that period when you have popes who are seen as really unworthy of help. So in the 1150s, after the Pope has actually been driven from Rome by the Roman people, who are very angry with him and his politicking, um, Barbarossa, Frederick Barbarossa, who, who says, I'm going to come and help restore the Pope to Rome, says, I'm doing this for Peter, not for Hadrian, the Pope, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the Pope is seen as a politician, one who's not behaving very well. And when Barbarossa is asked to hold the reins of Hadrian as he comes into Rome in this act of feudal submission to the papacy, he mm-hmm. refers as it's for Peter, not for you. So again, Peter saves them, right? Peter, this grounding in something divine saves them, but they're really, really denigrated. And as I referred to, they've been kicked out of Rome precisely for being too political. So in 1143, the Pope cuts a deal with the town of Tivoli and undermines the Romans' efforts to take over Tivoli. So he's really getting involved in politics and he's making his people angry. And that's dangerous because the relationship between the people of Rome and the Pope is a really important one for the papacy. Uh, So it gets them in, I think the short answer is it gets them into a lot of trouble. (laughs) Yes, we see this effort to sort of 
correct or rehabilitate its reputation and overcorrecting in a way that alienates them, mm. which then brings us to one of the greatest, most bizarre moments in papal history again, the flight to Avignon. So why mm. do the popes then go to Avignon? So this is actually a really good example of the problems that the popes have because of this proximity with political power, but also this haughtiness that they've got about their relationship with political figures. So by the time we get to the Avignon papacy in the 14th century, the story starts as ever much earlier, but the popes have essentially asserted themselves as being above emperors, above kings, lord of all, supreme in all things, the sun compared to the emperor's merely reflective moon, you know, it's not what, if you've got to being Holy Roman Emperor, you don't want to hear that. You don't, you, don't want to, no. you, don't, you don't want to hear that. But it's it's very, it makes a lot of sense that the Pope should be saying this in one way because they're the ones that crown the Holy Roman Emperors. They're the ones that have given them this prestige in exchange, more or less, for protection. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds a bit transactional and it's not wholly transactional, but it is a little bit transactional. And so the Popes are asserting themselves over secular authorities and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that in your own land. The secular authorities don't like this. And Philip the Fair of France really, really doesn't like this. He's king of France in the early 14th century. And he is asserting himself over his bishops and over the clergy. Um, and he arrests a bishop. And Boniface VIII, who in many ways is a fascinating pope and a beloved pope in many ways and a very learned pope, is not beloved of Philip the Fair because he says, You can't try priests in court. They're under my jurisdiction. I'm going to revoke all the privileges you've had to do anything like that. And you're going to come to Rome and we're going to talk about this in a council. Philip the Fair, who is said to have been pretty haughty himself in terms of the way that he behaved, was a bit of a match for Boniface. And he says, well, actually, I'm going to send some envoys to Rome, but they're not going to sit and, and give in. You're going to retract all of this and you're going to step down from being the Pope. The envoys find the Pope Boniface in Agnani, a town outside of Rome, where the popes have sort of retreated to, and actually ancient Roman emperors also did, a bit cooler, a bit quieter. Boniface has family connections there as well. And they find Boniface and they beat him up um, and he actually dies of his wounds, which was not the intention. Um, they just wanted to dethrone him. I'm not trying to excuse them, but they, he, <laughs> you know, he dies from his wounds or some sources say that he dies of a broken heart. And so, you know, this is a major moment. And this sparks the removal of the papacy from Rome, because after that, Boniface has a short-lived successor. And then he has a successor that's seen as a compromise candidate. And actually, I think this is a pattern in popes. I've begun to realize that anyone who you think (laughs) is a compromise candidate or is a safe bet is going to be a problem or is going to actually... Upheaval. Exactly, exactly. So you have this... I think even Sixus V, way in the late 16th century, is the first one I came across with this when I was studying. But he thought he was really old and he was going to die. And, and there were sort of sources that where he's on crutches and then he's elected and he chucks the crutches away. And I'm not sure if that happened, but metaphorically, he chucked the crutches away and was around for quite a significant amount of time and, mm-hmm. and had a big idea. So Clement V is seen as a compromise candidate. He's from Gascony, so they don't want anybody too tied to the French court, right? They don't want Philip to get too much power, but they also don't want Philip to get too angry. Yes. So he's from Gascony, so he's from southern France, but he's not tied to the French court. 
And so he's seen as a compromised figure, but he's elected in Perugia and he's installed in Lyon. And the fact is, is papal court is full of French influence by this time. And so Clement has to stay in France to resolve the issues surrounding Boniface's death and these problems with the French court. You can't just sort of say, right, no, I'm going back to Rome, just essentially sort of killed the Pope and there were all these issues beforehand. Let's just, you know, sort of sweep it under the rug. He has to stay and sort things out. And gradually he is sort of dominated by this French influence and he settles there. His successor settles there. His successor is the former Bishop of Rouen. And so you get popes who are there for pragmatic reasons that are tied to this conflict, but then also pragmatic reasons about what's going on in Rome. Because Mm -hmm. when the popes got in Rome, all of these people who would normally be, you know, who've been the kind of families who are trying to influence who becomes pope now have a power vacuum to play in. And they're not playing, they're warring, they're fighting. And Rome becomes a increasingly unattractive prospect for the popes. And also in terms of actually being able to get back there and assert influence, it becomes increasingly difficult. And the popes really struggle actually later in the 14th century to be able to kind of put down all the unrest and get back. It's a chain of events that actually now I'm sort of laying them out seem, I mean, it's such a monumental period, decades and decades away from Rome in in Avignon. Mm -hmm. And it seems, yeah, like this kind of chain reaction of smaller conflicts that lead to a really monumental shift. Yeah, absolutely. And how does the city suffer in the absence of the Pope? Because Rome has been so tied to it. And now that Rome is not an exciting or attractive prospect for the Popes, the city is going to suffer in secular and pragmatic as well as spiritual and metaphorical ways without its figurehead. Mm, You've got two key strands of trauma for Rome at this time. You've got the practical element the entire bureaucracy of the papal court goes to Avignon mm-hmm. gradually. Yeah. All the jobs, and you know, all of the notaries, all of the apparatus of this growing institution, this institution that's grown up. Um, so Rome is sort of economically bereft when the papacy moves to Avignon, gradually moves to Avignon. The churches become more dilapidated. So the Pope, some popes are sending money if there's a fire, you know, one of the major basilicas. But generally, the buildings, the fabric of the buildings are becoming really degraded. And, and you see this even in accounts from the 15th century, you know, and certainly from the later 14th century, that everything's desolate, falling down, you know, abandoned. And so you've got the lack of resources. You've also got all of these invasions, these wars, this conflict in Rome political tumult, the emergence of governments like the government of the 13 good men, the rise of demagogues like Colo Lorenzo, people trying to fill this vacuum, but never mm. being able to do it really, because they don't have that legitimacy. They, you know, they might hark back to the Roman Empire, but that was a long time ago. So it doesn't quite stick. It does, it's not quite convincing for Romans. They might like the idea, and you've got some beautiful buildings from the medieval period where they're using classical architecture, like the Casa di Crescenzo, where they're referring to that classical heritage. But really, even if these figures rising up as potential rulers of Rome refer to it, it doesn't feel legitimate. It doesn't have that same legitimate authority as the papacy does. There's a sense of tumult. There's a sense of economic loss. There's a sense of kind of physical degradation. And just, I think, the pervading sense that something is, is, is very wrong. People are still coming to Rome. I think it's really fascinating, actually. And I think it underlines the importance of place and relics and shrines. 
that Bridget of Sweden, for example, who's a, a yes. widow who becomes a leader of religious order, who comes to Rome during this period, is seeking the approval for her religious order. She knows the popes are in Avignon, but she goes to Rome. I mean, she fervently believes that the Pope should be in Rome. So there's method, you know, there, there's logic there. But Rome remains this essential locus for Christianity and also for the sense of papal authority. People seeking it still come to Rome. They, they're building hospices and things continue. But it is a period of real problems and a real unsettling period for the people of Rome. So following on that point, do you think that despite this, that there was ever a moment where it seemed like the papacy could be permanently done with Rome? And what would that have meant for the papacy and for Rome? I think so. Maybe I'm being, maybe it's just sort of being an historian, but I think when the archives moved to Avignon, so in the Benedict <laughs> XII yes, moved the archives to Avignon, that's a scary moment, right? Yes. Because the archives are the institution. There's a sense that you're building up the records that you're going to be adding mm -hmm. to this over many years. And the archives by the mid 14th century are pretty vast, I should imagine. I don't know the exact scale. You've also got figures like Clement VI building a grand palace, you know, with a, that it has a wing called Rome. This is all pretty unnerving. But at the same time, the very fact that they have to have a wing called Rome shows that they can never get away yeah. from the fact that they rely on Rome for their authority. And I think it's such a fascinating question. I know we're not supposed to do what if history, but it's, it is, yeah. I, think it, I think it can really help us to illuminate the significance of things. Because yeah, I think often when we get used to ideas, we can forget their impact. I think that if the papacy had permanently moved to Avignon, it would have transformed it perhaps in such a way that it could not have endured to the modern day. Because its reputation amongst, you know, you look at contemporary writers like Dante, Petrarch, Bridget of Sweden, Catherine of Siena, it made the papacy look hollow. It made it look like the pawn of a secular ruler of Philip the Fair. Everything that it was saying that, you know, when we see the building up of the papal states, the papacy are saying it can't be, you know, it needs its own independence. They are the ones with the divine power. It's making it look that they're just sort of living at the behest of this foreign ruler. They're also just practically and unearthed from dislodged from the place that gives them all of their authority mm. and meaning. And so I think that it would have it could have been fatal for the papacy. But for that very reason, I don't think it could have endured, because I think that Rome and the papacy are inextricably entwined. You can't be pope if you're not bishop of Rome. And if you're bishop of Rome, you know, there are big arguments in the 16th century about the residency of bishops and bishops not living in their diocese. But if you're bishop of Rome and you're claiming to be the pope and the global head of the Christian church, because of that, you've got to be in Rome. You can't permanently be outside of Rome. There's a sense to which Yes, it's an idea by this time, the Petrine link. It is an idea, but it's always tethered to a physical reality. We see that in the churches, we see that in the relics, we see that in the shrines. And that's somehow very, very important. So I don't think that it could have survived forever in Avignon, because I think they would have always needed to go back. And I also think it wouldn't have survived because it would just become hollowed out. The idea it was already in those six, seven decades was losing prestige, losing meaning seem ever more cynical. 
So is it that ideological perspective of we do have to go back? What eventually does convince the popes that they do have to go back? Yeah, there is certainly the ideological justification. You know, you have people like Bridget of Sweden, who, you know, she stays with the relative of Clement VI in Rome, where now the Palazzo della Cancelleria is right near the Camba di Fiori. And she's writing to the popes and she's saying, you know, this is insane. She literally calls them insane for not being in Rome. And it's very difficult to know, actually, how far popes listened to people urging them. But one pope, mm-hmm. and I, I can't remember who, had a picture of Bridget in his room in Avignon. She was somebody who they respected. And, you know, you get Catherine of Siena as well, writing to the popes and urging them and really criticizing them in really fervent terms for this. So I think that there is this urging. I think there is a sense. It's very hard to measure how much anybody's, you can't measure how much anyone's heart is turned by any one thing, even in the present day, let alone going back sort of centuries. So it's difficult to measure the impact of those things. But I think the influence and the proximity of figures like Bridget and Catherine suggests that they would have had some impact. You also have the fact that there are problems in Italy that are getting worse and worse. So while the papacy are in Avignon, there is a conflict emerging with Florence, and there is a war that started with Florence. And there are sort of papal envoys who are fighting this down and killing a lot of people. But there's unrest that proves to be problematic for trade and is proving to be problematic in really severe political and economic terms that suggests that the popes have got to go back to Rome and they've got to assert their power really, really firmly. Otherwise, there might not be anything to go back to. And so there are lots of influences and voices urging the popes back to Rome, but it's not easy. They've got to put down a lot of warring families. And even Urban V gets back to Rome with the help of this remarkable cardinal, Urbanos, who gathers together the resource to fight down these warring families and gets them back. And then he leaves again. And Bridget says, what are you doing? And he ignores her and he keeps going. But, that you know, they finally do get back. Gregory XI gets back and, and he, he dies shortly after. He's only in his 40s. So it's not easy. It's really not easy. But they get there. They do. And after that period of chaos, and we could spend a lot of time talking about the Western schism as well, but I want to sort of jump in and cover, summarize a couple more periods before we're done. So let's talk about the Renaissance, your home and mine, Um, early modern period. How does the Pope utilize these, what we would now refer to as Renaissance ideals and culture to rehabilitate their role in Rome and beyond? I think that it's such an interesting period because, again, it's something that we see as such a given, right? You think Mm -hmm. Popes and Rome, you think Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, match made in heaven. But again, in many ways, this is something that's quite unlikely. Yes. A pagan (laughs) culture, a culture that has, or references to a pagan culture, references to a culture that was born of institutions that persecuted Christians or were indifferent to Christians or in which Christians didn't live. Mm -hmm. So it's not so likely. But popes are great patrons of the Renaissance. They see its value. I think there's something to be said for the fact that many popes were just really interested in the way that lots of people were interested in all these manuscripts that were being unearthed, all these sculptures that are being unearthed and put in the collections of the papacy, like the Laco and like the Apollo Belvedere. And that there is, these things are genuinely interesting. But there is Definitely something to be said for at least the impact of 
the coincidence of the popes having to come back to Rome and rebuild the city, which has been left and degraded, to rebuild their reputation, which has been left and degraded, and the emergence of these great artists, this great thinking, and this very, very, very Roman aesthetic. And there is this, mm. this obsession in Rome amongst noble families and amongst the popes that emerge for them of really emphasizing their Romanitas. And Martin V, who is the first pope to come back to Rome after the, the great schism, after this period of several popes being elected in different places and not being able to quite get a handle on that, that Petrine line, he comes back as the, the one true pope and the streets are broken. He's riding through. Everyone's so delighted to see him. But the, the city is a mess. And in, the, in his papacy, and, in, and particularly in the papacies afterwards, figures like Sixers IV, Nicholas V, we see a reordering of the city and a reutilization of these, all these classical motifs and this very, this idea of Romanitas to assert the imprint of the papacy on Rome. Mm-hmm. And I think this period also has a knock-on effect on later periods. And if we think about the 18th century, not to jump too far forward, when the popes to many people were only important, many visitors to Rome, and were only important as custodians of culture, this is where that's turbocharged, right? Paul Boniface VIII, mm-hmm. who was killed after his injuries and the army, sponsored the university, he collected illuminated manuscripts, you know, there were very cultured popes before this time. But it's in this period you get the foundation of the Vatican Library. You get popes sending out humanists, you know, all over Europe to get unearth these classical texts from monasteries where they've been, you know, laying dusty perhaps for centuries. And where you get these humanists being employed as papal secretaries, even when they're sort of maybe sailing slightly close to the wind. Thinking about somebody like Lorenzo Valle using his Latin skills to critique the some of the documents the popes use to prove their ownership of land you know (laughs) there are hairy moments and there are humanist academies that are you know with members of which you're imprisoned by popes you say look okay we can all use this we can all have a bit of fun with this it's it's beautiful it's it's interesting it's useful but let's not go too far down the line of of the ideas that were originally attached to this like republicanism or paganism so they play with it uh, or use it rather, well, I'm making it sound frivolous, it wasn't frivolous, there was interest, but they also use it in a very important way to make their mark on the city and reshape the city and it, beautifully. But it's not like it wasn't sometimes flirting with danger. And I think their confidence there, again, shows their pragmatism and their, and their courage of their convictions. And so how do we go from that to what we see in the popes being under attack during the rise of Protestantism? Why is there such a shift in ideology about the Pope having practical authority? I think that it's a a coincidence of a number of things. I think that we've seen already that people have been annoyed about the Popes having practical authority, you know, over and over again. You know, we've seen it in the uprising in the 12th century of the Romans. We've seen it in the clashes with the Byzantine emperors, with Holy Roman emperors. And so this is something that's rumbled through, and it's mainly political rulers saying, no, I decide what happens in my lands. You can't say you have this supernatural national authority that sort of supersedes everything and everywhere. So this disquiet has been rumbling on. There have also been people who said, you know, the church has to reform. The Pope can't have so much power. So in the 19th century, 12th century, you have conciliarism, where this is movement that says, you know, actually church councils should have great amount of authority as well, not just the popes. So you can mm-hmm. see this in the church as well. 
But I think it comes to a peak in the 16th century because the Pope's diplomatic role comes to a peak. At this time, Rome is a hub. The papal court is a hub of people coming and asking for popes to bless their decisions. We need only think of Henry VIII, famous in this la- these <laughs> lands, for asking the Pope to grant an annulment so that he can marry the woman that he then loved. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that he should do that might seem in some respects, again, if we look at this kind of critically, objectively, slightly absurd. Why should the King of England, in, you know, in his own land, have to resort to this international power? Why should other countries let money flow to Rome that could be kept mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. own lands? So there's a growing anger amongst secular rulers, political figures, about this interference, about this need to keep asserting their own authority against that of the Pope. And when Luther emerges as a critic of the papacy, really he's criticising those things that's grounded in sort of things that Luther could have accepted, but that have become quite transactional and cynical. So his great challenge Mm -hmm. is that against indulgences. Now, Luther had been in Rome himself. He'd gone to the Pope. He'd gone to Rome because he wanted to settle a dispute in his religious order. He was an Augustinian. And so he'd gone to the Pope as an authority. And well, there, he'd climbed the Scala Sancta to get indulgences. He'd gone on his knees up the stairs, the great relic that was said to be the stairs that are said to be the stairs that Jesus ascended to go to the room of Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm. He'd done all of that. You know, he was a card-carrying member of the kind of Christian church under the Pope. But what he objects to is when this becomes transactional, when Tetzel, the chief seller of indulgences in the German lands, starts saying, drop a penny in the jar and a soul will spring from purgatory. And this is what he's critiquing. And then he starts actually critiquing all these other very cynical things about the papacy. Why at all should you be actually even collecting money for St. Peter's when the Pope is as rich as Croesus? You know, he he should be paying for it himself. And suddenly you have, well, not suddenly, gradually you get the meeting of these sort of theologically grounded criticisms by Luther about what the papacy has become with the burgeoning aggravation of rulers who are angry Mm -hmm. about the same overstretching or the same sort of development in the church or some of the same things. And so you have a rebel who, unlike earlier rebels or critics of papal authority, like Jan Hus, for example, only slightly earlier than Luther, has the backing of secular rulers. Mm -hmm. So the Reformation, of course, there are many people who abandoned Roman authority and the authority and rejected the authority of the Pope for purely religious reasons, of course, and who believed in theology and believe in the theology of the Protestant reformers. But it also gave a justification to other rulers who wanted to push off this supernatural, but also kind of supranational, super international authority that the Pope had asserted that was interfering with politics. It was interfering with things right. that they decide, said they thought that they should decide. And this is an attitude that we see continue through the Enlightenment, right up to the 19th century, even this idea of challenging and pulling back that level of secular and political power. So jumping ahead quite a bit, but how does this changing attitudes about the world and the role of the Pope in it change that? And how does that 
impact their moral authority, their political authority, their social authority, all the way through to the 19th century. I think that the developments in thought that come after the Enlightenment into the 19th century, ideas like people who rule, rule by the consent of the people. So Mm -hmm. you can only have power if the people actually maybe silently, tacitly, but agree that you can have it. You can't learn things um, necessarily in a, you don't need the supernatural, you don't need superstition mm-hmm. to help you to understand things. You can learn things through reason alone. You don't need an outside authority to tell you what's right and wrong. I think that these things are were more dangerous. I nearly said fatal, but it, it can't be fatal if, it, if the papacy still lives, right? Still here. <laughs> yeah, but more dangerous to the papacy than the Reformation because mm-hmm. in the Reformation, there are still assumptions. There's still an assumption that Christ matters, that Peter matters, that the Pope, even Luther at first, he just wanted to talk. He just wanted to dispute. You know, he wasn't trying to take the whole thing down. But when you start saying that to have power, you need consent from the people, when you start saying that there's you can't inherit authority or get it from some divine source, you take away the underpinnings of an institution that is based on something that's in the Gospel of Matthew and then successors that are elected in that city all based on that divine claim. And so... It's fascinating as a shift. And you get in the 18th century, we referred to earlier, you know, the people coming to Rome, visitors from places like England, but also the the Americas and all over the world who aren't interested in the papacy. They actually want to get back to ideas, aspects of Roman culture and history that seem to have a lot more in common with this new way of thinking. So they're looking to Cato and Cicero and all of these things, these figures that seem to have much more to do with the kind of order and rationality that they're interested in. And for them, you know, you read these accounts of them going around Rome, for them, the papacy at best is a mere spectacle. I mean, Goethe, you know, the German writer and public figure, he goes to Rome and he wants to go and see the Pope because he wants to go and see the Vicar of Christ. But as a spectacle, he doesn't think that mm-hmm. the Vicar of Christ, and he's really disappointed when he sees Pius VI just muttering in front of an altar like an old man as he sees it, because he wants to see some, you know, he wants to see something spectacular. And um, so this interest in the papacy as a cultural spectacle, which I think does carry yes. on actually to our own day. And yet the interest is still there, which also mm-hmm. carries on to our own day. You know, there is some more weight to it. You also get, which is fascinating, this sense of the actually the permanence of the papacy in spite of this. So Mm -hmm. in Rome, this really comes to a head in the 1840s. So in Europe in 1848 to 1849, famous years in Europe, but revolutions everywhere. The old regime looks like it's coming apart. And there is a revolution in Rome and the Pope Pius IX has to leave the city. Mm -hmm. Up until that point, though, many of the people who espoused ideas like there needs to be a democratic government, that there needs to be a unified Italy because Italy is still this patchwork of states, right? We don't have a nation of Italy at this point. We have, you know, duchies and principalities. There are people writing about this and theorizing about it who are really at the forefront of this movement who are saying, the Pope could be the head of this. We'll have a Mm -hmm. unified Italy with lay people in government, but the Pope will be the head of this new modern Italy. I think it's remarkable 
Because yeah. even though all of these ideas, these revolutionary ideas, are grounded in concepts and ways of seeing the world, which totally pull the rug out from underneath the idea of the papacy and this divine link and this Petrine line and this religious authority that can't be questioned. The Pope is still so important, is still so wedded to the culture, society and perception of not only Rome, but Italy as a whole, those states of Italy, that many people are imagining this future with the Pope at the head of it. So <laughs> it's not everybody, but it's pretty remarkable. But the Pope himself says, Pius IX, a very staunch Pope, a very sort of reactionary Pope, he says that's impossible because he knows that these two things are, are irreconcilable. And so I think in this period from the 18th century onwards, we start to see actually a grown gulf between the way that political regimes are going in Rome and elsewhere and the papacy. And we also, I think, start to see more of ourselves in how people are reacting to the popes. And I don't want to yes. kind of generalize, but I think today, if I think about how, when I talk about the papacy to Romans, so I try to talk to a lot of Romans about how they think about the Pope, how they perceive the Pope, how they perceive Rome and the papacy. And I gathered answers by talking to people, but also um, by asking Roman friends to talk to other people. And one of the answers that came back when I said, well, can you ever imagine Rome without the popes? Was a Roman in his 50s, who's an atheist, who said, no, this is impossible. There can never be every single person. I didn't have one person who came back and said there could be a Rome without the Pope. This is impossible. Rome doesn't host the Pope. The Pope hosts Rome. Mm, so even mm -hmm. today, with somebody who would be a self-avowed atheist, which is not where we're at in the 19th century. I mean, there are, you know, atheism is maybe slowly is growing to be something that's not just an insult, is, is more accepted, but on a, a tiny scale. Nowadays, it's something that is an acceptable thing to say even in a Christian society that would define themselves as Christian, the, mm. the idea of divorcing the papacy in Rome still is out of the question. And I think right. you start to see the nucleus of that in the 18th, 19th century, which I, I think is fascinating. And we still haven't got to the point where we could say, well, this is absurd. This has got nothing to do with the way that we live our lives today. Still, the papacy has this significance and this, this tie. Absolutely. And I think that is a perfect note for us to end on because that is so relevant to everything that we've talked about from antiquity to now. So I have just one final question for you that we have to ask as Pontifex ranking all of the popes. Who is your favorite pope in history and why? I, I, I have an answer. But I want to have a caveat because I think that uh, <laughs> I think it's dangerous to start, you know, to start saying, you know, this guy was great. I'm not saying this guy was great. I didn't know him. He was alive in the fourth century. But I think an underrated pope, and I haven't listened to your episode on him. I'm assuming you have an episode on him. Is Damasus? Nah, Damasus yeah. I mean, this guy, he's pope in the 360s. Okay, mm -hmm. Constantine has legalized Christianity in 313. It's not been long. But he knows, as so many other people do, that it's worth fighting for the papacy at this time. He has an all-out street war against Osinus, his rival. Yes. They're throwing tiles from the roofs of basilicas. They're fighting for it. He's getting his hands dirty. And when he gets it, he gets into society. His nickname is the earpick of great ladies. Like He's the first <laughs> society pope. He knows who to mix with. And yet still, even he knows, even this sort of very worldly kind of socialite, 
thug. I wanted to call him a gangster, but it's not. It's an anachronism. He totally but, is. Know, yeah, he's a gangster. You know, even though he gets the worldly side of this, he even you know before Leo realizes that that is not where the core of the authority is. The core of the authority mm-hmm. is in the martyrs, and so he's not only a socialite. He's not only a bit of a thug. He's a poet. He's also a saint, so I shouldn't call him a thug. But he's a poet. And he writes poems about the martyrs. It has them inscribed on important places in the city. And what I think is fascinating about that is that, you know, 366 years after Jesus of Nazareth has died and this whole thing starts, you've got a man who's emerged as the religious leader of this city. And he understands you've got to be willing to fight for it. You've got to be tied to the world. But actually, the most enduring thing you can do is call upon the martyrs, call upon their legitimacy, their legacy, and tie yourself to Rome and tie that into Rome. And that's where the really strong underpinning for your power is going to be. And that is what also, not to, it's not entirely cynical, but this, that is the core of the faith that is going to sustain the whole thing. And that's the thread that runs through all the papacies. The current Pope, I think, has probably, I mean, he's got to be up there, if not, you know, what, if not the, the top Pope of, of making saints, you know, mm-hmm. of creating mm-hmm. these new saints, of, of beatifying people. This is such an important part of the saints of, of the whole story. And, and Damasus just sums up that in so many other things. I think he's Netflix worthy, Damasus. I think he's a saint, but he's underrated still somehow. So you will be very pleased to know that he is our top scoring Pope. Seriously? <laughs> oh that? my gosh, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. Okay, I'm not alone. He's in first place and his score makes him, he's going to be very challenging to beat yeah. in, in all of our categories. He scored extremely well. So he's number one. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so that's, you know, gratifying note to finish on. Exactly. That's perfect. So thank you so much for all of your time, Jessica. Where can our listeners find you, find your book? How can they get in contact with you if they have questions? Tell us how to get to you. <laughs> I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I'm at Jessica Warmberg on Twitter. A lot of questions are answered in my book, City of Echoes, um, which is available, I think, all over the place. But I'm always happy to answer questions on Twitter. And yeah, I'm re- yeah, very contactable there. So at Jessica Warmberg. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure. It's been a real fun. <laughs> Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the wonderful papal history podcast, Popular History, which is history through Pope-colored glasses. At Popular History, you can also find daily content miniseries like Cardinal Numbers, ranking all of the cardinals, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm.